nursing industry is one of the fastest growing career forces in the world today. There are so many issues in the healthcare field these days relating to nurses that simply are not discussed in the media. Welcome to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with Leanne Meyer. Our program will help you with the most relevant information if you are in the nursing field or are planning to enter the industry. Now, here is your host, Leanne Meyer. Hi, and welcome back to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing. This is Leanne Meyer, and I always appreciate that you come back again and again, and it's always wonderful to hear from you on the stories that most impacted you, and I'm always looking to hear from you if there are stories you'd like to hear that we haven't covered. So uh, I also like to mention that our new sponsor is uh, Women in Healthcare, uh, which is also um, Uh, a show that we did last week on March 2nd, and uh, their whole program, so womeninhealthcare.com, is to promote the professional development of all women in the healthcare industry. So it's not just nurses, doctors, that sort of thing. So we did have a fascinating episode last week, and uh, if you would be interested in hearing that, please feel free to go to my host page at voiceamerica.com then health and wellness, and then you just click on either the host, Leanne Meyer, or the show, Once a Nurse. Um, so uh, they are also, I wanted to mention, they are going to be presenting a webinar uh, called Preventing Workplace Burnout, and that's going to be March 17th from 1 to 2 Eastern Standard Time uh, on their website again, womeninhealthcare.org. Um, so thank you so much uh, for uh, joining us today. Um, I also wanted to put out a request that I am interested in talking with doctors and nurses around the world who are actively involved in dealing with the coronavirus outbreak. So please contact me today at leannevoiceamerica at gmail.com. Thank you so much. So today's show is uh, basically a conversation with a British midwife, and that's kind of a very... um, quiet uh, uh, title, I guess, but I'm hoping that we will have some really interesting conversation here. With my background in obstetrics and a one-time dream of being a midwife, I am really excited to have Dr. Sally Pizarro. She is an academic midwife at the School of Nursing, Midwifery, and Health at Coventry University in Coventry, England. So I was first connected to her through her writings about um, opioid abuse in midwives. Uh, Then from some personal conversation that she and I had, I realized she has so much more to share through the work that she has done and is doing in research. So please welcome Dr. Sally Pizarro. So, Sally, um, give us a little bit of information about how you got started as a midwife and then how you came to the place you are now doing research. Um, Okay, Leanne, thank you for having me here. Um, Basically, I started um, getting really interested in um, the the kind of amazing things that the body can achieve, you know, growing and birthing a human. Yes. Um, Yes. When I, uh, I, my brother was born, so I saw my mum kind of get pregnant and trying to explain to me this is what was happening. And I was just like, no way, no, <laughs> that can't be happening. That, that's, that's insane. Um, 
and I grabbed her antenatal textbooks of what she was reading at the time and apparently I read them cover to cover about four years old (laughs) Uh, and I was just fascinated in the process about how a human being could do this Um, but I think actually midwifery is quite a mature uh, profession to embrace Um, so I think when I was kind of 18 going to university that kind of thing I was a little bit too immature too young to really take on the enormity of the role but actually before I went to the the workplace I, I did a, a degree in media and communications and I thought after I did that you know I couldn't really face going into the workplace and leaving this dream of being a midwife behind so that's when I trained to become a midwife and and work clinically in those um, scenarios where the home birth team I was working in, um, the hospital I've worked in Africa, different different countries. Um, uh, but I actually got quite poorly myself when I was uh, working as a clinical midwife and I found the, the shift work quite stressful. I had health mm. problems and I just thought actually um, I might be better off, you know, doing something mm. else here. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also I found myself um, looking at... Um, other people being burnt out, other people being distressed. When I had these conversations with other midwives, they would tell me stories of the same thing. And in practice, you know, I'm quite an ambitious person. And I found that, that you know, I, had, I got a master's degree in leadership. And, and I was like, where am I going to take this? You know, mm-hmm. I've got these skills, I've got this education, I've got this passion and drive and vision. And at the time, and I'm talking a few years ago now, um, I didn't really see a path carved out for myself in terms of being a a leading midwife and really making a change. And also, every time I wanted to make a change, people would say, well, where's the evidence for that? Very concerned with the evidence base. And rightly so, you know, uh, know, Mm -hmm. things we do must be evidence-based. But I thought, you know, often the evidence were either missing or incomplete or poor quality. And I thought, actually you know, if I do want to make any impact in midwifery, any positive contribution, that's going to involve evidence, research, teaching, improving practice. And when I started getting into my PhD, which was looking at um, uh, designing an intervention to support midwives, um, that that kind of expertise grew and I was able to, I'm learning every day, I'm still learning now, um, how to create that evidence and use that evidence to inform practice and make improvements going forward and that's really just where I found my calling I think um, and once you start asking research questions more research questions come mm-hmm. um, and I'm working with the most amazing people and the most amazing team um, where I'm based but also in different places in the world and they enrich my experience and they enrich my learning as well and I think midwives collectively and nurses you know working together can just just create some amazing ideas contributions um, and evidence to really change the way we we practice midwifery and experience midwifery ourselves so that's really where my background came to and, and it, it brought me to where I am now which is basically delving into a variety of topics and Mm -hmm. um, areas where I find an interest and where I think other people are needing that evidence to to join up the dots really. And I am so glad there are people like you who like to do that because I don't. (laughs) Uh, Numbers just like Uh, are not my favorite things so I am so thrilled that there are people that can do it and could do it well 
and bring it to me or to people like me so that we can utilize it in a in a really positive way but yeah i'm i'm really glad that you're able to do that so i started a little bit in the beginning of the show talking about the coronavirus and because that has uh, really jumped in the news in the last few days even. Um, I heard this morning that the number of um, positive tests in the United States had almost doubled uh, over the weekend. And then 22 deaths, and um, I think at least five of those were over the weekend. So um, I'm wondering where are things at in Great Britain uh, from your standpoint? Well, again, I'm getting uh, reports on my phone every 10 minutes from news reports of, you know, there's three more cases, there's four more cases, there's another person died, um, etc. And and we're quite a diverse, multi, you know, international country, people flying in and out, working Mm -hmm. in Coventry University. We're a very international university. We have students flying in all of the time to, um, to access their courses and the teaching and learning facilities so really I think things are changing on uh, on a kind of very rapid um, basis and the Royal College of Midwives and the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists in the UK have produced guidance for for pregnancy but at the minute it, the guidance is even saying this guidance is, is ever-changing right um, Uh, And, you know, people are getting individual advice as well from their own healthcare professional because each symptom will be different. Every person will experience it, Mm -hmm. um, you know, in their own unique way that needs to be assessed. So it's really difficult to to make blanket guidelines for everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, And you don't want to dwell on it too much because it's scary. So for the pregnant women, um, is there anything beyond uh, good hand washing, stay away from sick people, don't go out if you are sick yourself, anything in particular specific to them as pregnant, as they are having their pregnancy? Well, I'm looking at the the guidance now and it's saying on the diagnosis of it, you know, if diagnostic tests are advised, pregnant women should follow the advice given, which should not be altered based on pregnancy status. Okay. so I think as well they need to they need to think about their health, their hygiene practices, as with everybody else, mm-hmm. um, and, and and maintain close contact, you know, verbally with um, their their healthcare provider or midwife in mm-hmm. that area because I think guidance is is being issued as quickly as possible, uh, and that will be again on a, a country by country, area by area basis, I imagine, as to to how this mm-hmm. is developing. So so really, it's about accessing those guidances. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, uh, the the world has gotten smaller and smaller, as we know, and especially with um, air travel and people can get from one place to another in a very short period of time. And uh, that's one of the reasons why this is spreading so fast. We knew this was coming or could come. Like you, I think you mentioned that SARS is something that we had in the past and there's been other viruses that have taken a worldwide uh, role. So I think it's just for healthcare um, employees and providers just to remind ourselves this is not um, a a totally unusual thing. Um, This is something we know can happen and we just need to be uh, calm about it and think about what are the rational things that we need to do to plan ahead and prepare for whatever eventualities. So um, this is the year of the nurse and the midwife, the international year of the nurse and the midwife. We've been doing a lot of talking about nurses, and I thought uh, I really was interested in having a midwife come and speak. So is there anything you'd like to mention about um, this year being dedicated to this topic? 
Um, well, there's lots of things. And I think it's actually really exciting that the World Health Organization has given us this opportunity, really, to stand up and say, you know, this is our time. This is um, for us to say we matter. Uh, look at the contribution we can make. Look at the, the amazing things nurses and midwives are doing around the world um, and actually get our agenda heard. Um, and I definitely think in terms of leadership, midwives and nurses now, there's some amazing leadership positions and leaders in nursing and midwifery that I see just paving the way for other midwives to aspire to 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 become to take on that um role mm -hmm. in, in in their own profession you know we don't just catch babies as midwives you don't just <laughs> you know do mm -hmm. do your wound dressings and that's it you know we're, we're a profession of diverse individuals and we could contribute to teaching research specialist roles um and, and we're really vital to the services. And I think it's our opportunity to, to say that. And already I've kind of written opinion pieces in, in the British Journal of Midwifery, especially saying, you know, let's let's come together and really showcase what we can do and, and mm -hmm. how we want to be portrayed in the media, our perceptions in the media about what we do and how we how we go about our our professional business. Let's get that message out there. I think that in the United States for a long time, midwives were seen to be um, uh, not necessarily professional. And <clears throat> many people might not know that many times midwives start out as nurses. Sometimes they start right as a midwife and are trained in that particular area. I think that as um, more and more young people are having midwife delivered babies, um, it's becoming more apparent just how professional these people are and the training that they have and that they have to keep up on. So um, if you want to address that at all, what the training is um, and how that is coming along in Great Britain, do you see more uh, uh, respect for the midwife? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, they're, they're highly trained professionals and they, you know, it's a three year degree now. Um, I don't often see many people who are with dual registration nowadays. Um, so they're both nurses and midwives. M majority in the UK that I see uh, are either nurses or midwives, mm -hmm. um, but they're highly trained. And the best way to think of them is, uh, I guess, specialists. Mm -hmm. So specialists in um, physiological birth um, and the management of, of any an identification of risk, really. Um, in that area and again and again we see research coming out saying that midwives uh, um, who are present at low risk births in in birth centers birth units you know the outcomes are, are better for those people mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and so I think people with that evidence comes more and more respect for what we do um, how we do things and our approach to to supporting birth really is championed as being mm -hmm. kind of gold standard in many respects um, and as with the experts in low risk, you know, everybody else becomes the, the experts in high risk. So you mm -hmm. get the obstetrician who's the, the obstetrician who's the specialist when it goes high risk. So, um, it, again, we're, we're very multidisciplinary in the way we work. And I certainly work along some, alongside some amazing nurses, amazing obstetricians and, and everyone coming together with their own specialist knowledge um, to make right. the birth experience the, the best it possibly can be. And we're still working on making it better together. Um, I, I think when people ask me about, you know, what's different between a, a regular nurse in, say, a hospital setting 
and uh, someone who is working as a midwife, to me what comes to mind is you don't have one patient. You have at least two. You probably have, if there's a father involved, three. And then, however, other many people, if there are other children, then the nurse is still dealing with all of those people. So, and especially with the mother and baby, you have one person you can see and one person you can't see. And so that adds a whole nother element to a midwife's um, uh, trade and abilities, what, what kind of skills she has to bring to the table. Yeah, well, definitely. The the midwife is looking at things holistically, and that means, you know, person-centered, but also family-centered. Um, and I think it's really important to remember that when a pregnancy is low risk, there's, uh, there's no illness involved Mm -hmm. (laughs) whereas you know if you need a nurse you need nursing Mm -hmm. you're ill something is wrong for sure almost Mm -hmm. you know unless you're going for preventative medicine or something like that um generally midwives looking after low-risk women uh those women are not ill um or those Mm -hmm. pregnant people are not ill um so it's only when things are complicated by confounding variable factors that are coming in which are very common let's be honest um but but that's another difference between nurses and midwives really we're we're the experts um in in physiological pregnancy and birth whereas nursing you know there's so many specialisms because there's so many ailments and, and illnesses that that people can have mm-hmm. uh, separate from pregnancy yeah this kind of leads into another topic i'm interested in is um you know basically Uh, We talk about the wellness of the patient, but there's also a well-being of the midwife herself. So as more and more stresses in our communities and our cultures uh, become uh, apparent and and become uh, a part of what the midwife is living with in addition to the work she's doing, um, it's the well-being of that midwife is so completely linked to the quality and safety of maternity care. And I'm wondering what you'd like to um, share with us about that. Um, yeah, it's something I, I, I realized and reflected on quite quickly uh, when when I wasn't so well in practice that mm-hmm. um, basically every, every midwife wants the best, you know, care for, for, for pregnant people in their families. That is, you know, you, you don't go into it for the money, let's be honest. So you're doing it. <laughs> yeah. You're doing it because you care uh, and you want the best. But what I quickly learned is actually if you can't be your best at work or if you can't do, um, if you're not on top form, then then it's really hard to bring that quality and bring that safety um, into the birth room, as it were. And yes, then I started to research throughout my PhD in terms of what was happening with, within the midwifery profession and healthcare professionals in general. And just this link coming up consistently with poorer medical outcomes, infection rates, death rates, all of this stuff, if the, if the healthcare professional wasn't cared for themselves. So actually... Mm-hmm. In my view, you cannot, you will not achieve excellence necessarily in maternity care if you don't, um, you know, prioritize the health and well-being of the staff. That that has to come almost as a as a prerequisite to the excellence and uh, that we want to see in care. So I'm starting at the beginning, really trying to get that right, hoping for a knock-on effect into into making sure that maternity services are the best they can be, mm-hmm. if you like. So where does that start? Does that have to come from the administration of whatever organization the midwife is working with? Um, Does it come from the midwife herself taking care of whatever is coming up in her life? It's probably a chicken or egg, but what are your thoughts about that? 
I think it's um, a mixture. Of, this is going to sound like a cop-out answer, but I think it's it's a, a mixture of roles and responsibilities. And what we're still finding out about, really, is the culture of midwifery, the culture within the healthcare service where people can't necessarily seek help because they're professionals. And mm-hmm. what happens when the professional becomes impaired or um, oh, unwell, yeah. um, needs to pay the mortgage, but also needs to take time off of work. It needs to uh, recognize ill health in themselves and all those kind of things. Where does the responsibility come? And I do think it's a mixture of both. We need to create compassionate workplaces where um, healthcare professionals are, are recognized as, um, you know, people like everybody else. We, why, we keep hearing this um, statistic of one in four people will experience mental health problems in, the, in mm-hmm. their lifetime. You know, those one in, that means one in four midwives, one in four nurses as well. It's not, it's not that we are immune to those same kinds of problems. But again, because we have this additional pre- professional profile um, and practice to maintain, how do we balance that with um, being human and making mistakes and um, needing to um, take care of ourselves and be fit to practice, as it were? Um, and that's something that really interests me. And I'm delving into more and more um, with with research I'm currently, you know, doing and asking midwives about. So what are you finding? Is there anything that you can share with us Um, as far as is there something that's helping midwives with these very delicate balancing acts? Well, at the moment, we're collecting data for um, a study where we're asking midwives to tell us about their substance use so mm-hmm. um, and why they're, why they're using substances either to cope or um, for, for other reasons, telling us about their episodes of impairment, things like that. And they're very early results, really, which we will be kind of analysing and pulling together. But one thing I am just about to publish is uh, an integrative review of the literature on midwives and substance use. So I looked at what was already out there Mm -hmm. and I'm sure you're aware of the multitude of uh, literature on nursing and physicians so lots and lots of things about how nurses um, have got caught up in substance uh, use and addiction problems in different countries different reasons different problems Um, the same with physicians really working in stressful environments uh, not knowing how to cope etc and um, but there was what we found in the review that was that there was very very little literature on midwives in this um, yet midwives still have the same concerns as shift work um, stressful traumatic events etc etc so what we're trying to identify or explore if you like is is how do midwives come into this because a lot of the time midwives are lumped in with nurses it's midwives mm-hmm. and nurses and it's like you know we are a separate profession in our own right there are differences um in the in the way we work and so i'm trying to identify what is it about our profession um that happens in that way mm-hmm. um, and also it might be you know some of my previous research says that um it might be that midwives and other professionals actually need amnesty and help um, to to overcome to to access support. Um, and in London, at the moment, we have a practitioner health program, which looks after doctors who have um, 
problems with um, addiction, etc. But that's only available for doctors um, at mm. the moment. And it may be that we need something for nurses or mid in midwives in terms of a similar clinic for that, mm-hmm. uh, for that purpose. But again, until we've got the evidence base for it, we don't know how that might look or how that might work, or even if the, even if there is a need at the moment. But that's the kind of thing I'm wondering about at the moment, whether there is uh, that need for support. Yeah, I I would imagine there is. Um, When I think, you know, there's so much discussion in the United States now about universal health care, and we're basically the only country in the world that that is um, uh, in a first world situation that is not using that. So I guess I was thinking that that sort of support would be there already and something that would be very um, confidential so that doctors, and I guess I was hoping more than just doctors, could avail themselves of that. But you're saying that not yet. No, and I think it's as well. People don't know what midwives need. Midwives might not know what they need. Mm. Um, sometimes they don't recognize ill health in themselves because people who are poorly, you know, they lose insight. Um, sometimes it's very difficult to get that balance. And also, if you're expecting a manager or a healthcare organization to recognize when an employee needs help, how can they successfully identify that and support them with with compassionate workplaces and compassionate responses to that? Especially mm-hmm. if there's not the provision to provide occupational health support or um, specialist services that, that, that are required. So that's always something that's interested me. Mm-hmm. So when are you thinking you might have um, the results from the study you're doing right now? Uh, Well, like I said, the review is just about to be published, hopefully um, in the next couple of months. uh, And we're we're collecting data for midwife substance use until the end of May. So uh, anyone can access my blog and access the links for for all of the research we're doing and they can participate as and when they can. Um, And then uh, we'll be analysing that over the summer with a view to publishing that hopefully towards the end of this year. But as we always know, there's delays where you don't want them. Um, But that's the goal. Right. So give your blog again so that if they are thinking about that in June, uh, they could go back and check and see if it's out there yet. Yeah, I mean, if you Google me, Dr. Sally Pizarro, P-E-Z-A-R-O, you will find all of the, all of the links to everything. But my uh, blog is at Sally Pizarro, all one word, dot wordpress dot com. Um, okay. So, so you should find everything you need on there. Uh, and also, I'm very contactable, searchable on social media. Mm-hmm. I'm very happy to kind of get get people involved with this because I know every time I talk to someone about what I'm doing, they say that's me or I know someone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, so that's really interesting for me to find to connect with people um, who have an interest in this right and I'm thinking that some of the the material that is out there on doctors and nurses that is there any uh, overlap at all that there's some similarities that are coming up between those two areas and perhaps you might be seeing that kind of similarity in midwives Um, I think definitely about the way in which healthcare workers work in general so shift work um, shift patterns you know it means you don't always get to see your friends and family you don't always have a social life you're, it's a job of passion so you're doing it for the love of the job so you give yourself to that job and, and may sort of neglect your own needs and also any registered professional so registered doctor registered nurse registered midwife the fact that you are a registered professional uh, means that you may be more um reluctant to or more nervous or scared about losing your registration if you do have 
um, problems with your health. Which uh, so that's kind of something completely that you inside out. You want yeah. those people. It's sort of like the coronavirus. I, I keep coming back to that, but you know, there's so many people that don't want those numbers re- released, and yet if you don't have appropriate information, you're going to make up whatever. Uh, make sense to you or you're going to listen to somebody who perhaps you should not be listening to and I think that can be the same thing with some of these other things as people uh, are afraid if I come forward I'm going to lose my license and what you want is you want them to come forward so that we then can deal with them and they're not undercover um, dealing with patients when they're really not maybe able to do that. Exactly yeah really really important to do that. Mm. This might be a good place to take a break, so let's do that. Uh, This is Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, Exploring the World of Nursing, and I'm doing that exploration today with Dr. Sally Pizarro. She is an academic midwife at the School of Nursing, uh, Midwifery and Health at Coventry University uh, in Coventry, England. So uh, we've been talking about various aspects of midwifery, some of the separateness of nursing and midwives, and then also some of the uh, challenges that come up. So we will be back in just a couple of minutes. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Now there's a new destination for video content, voiceamerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise WomenInHealthcare.org, a national nonprofit, is our newest partner at Once a Nurse. It is among the most rapidly growing professional development groups for women in healthcare today. Through healthcare education, professional development, mentorship, community, and a focus on self, the organization empowers women with the tools needed to advance their careers. They use initiatives to break down barriers within organizations and equip women with the tools needed to open a powerful force for gender parity. 80% of the healthcare workforce is female, with nurses a massive majority of that percentage. But less than 20% of leadership is female. Join womeninhealthcare.org as they help all women of all ages and all levels rise up. Use code HEALTHPROS to receive $50 off the annual membership fee and receive discounted pricing for events, free resources, webinars, and a substantial discount for our annual leadership summit on October 22, 2020. Womeninhealthcare.org to be where you want to be in the world of healthcare. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has a mobile app for iOS, Android, or Amazon Kindle. Visit the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. 
It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse. Exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to leannevoiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse. Welcome back, and thanks for staying with us after the break. Uh, We are talking today with Dr. Sally Pizarro. She is an academic midwife at the School of Nursing, Midwifery, and Health in Coventry University, Coventry, England. Um, We're talking about midwifery, and we've been talking about a number of different things. Um, As we come back, um, I would like to talk about... um, understanding this is something that uh, I don't know how many people really think about but as we're having more and more transgender people in our communities we are going to have situations where there's going to need to be care for transgender people having births in the community and so I'd love to hear what you have to say about that. Well, I'm learning. I'm still learning as I go. I mm-hmm. do not profess to be an expert in this area, but how I came to research it was um, basically I was doing studies where I was asking women about their experiences. And very quickly on social media, people were saying, you know, you need to be more inclusive with your language. It's not just women mm-hmm. who have babies. Mm-hmm. There's um, transgender people, non-binary people um, who are also having babies. And you mm-hmm. would do well in your research to uh, explore the experiences of these people and include them. And I said, you know, you're absolutely right. I want to be as inclusive as I can possibly be. Um, but but sometimes there just will be um, a, those that have a different experience because they are a unique population in their mm-hmm. own right. So I said, you know, I, I completely get your point. And actually, this needs to be researched separately as a separate study in its own right. I can't just lump it in with what I'm already doing. It's it's going to be complex. It's going to be something that needs special attention given to it, and rightly so. Um, so, yes, we are currently collecting data, again, from um, midwives to tell us what they need in terms of education on this. Because um, while there are some large, large research studies going on to find out the experiences of transgender people when they're having babies, one major thing that's coming out is that uh, healthcare professionals don't quite know what to do, what to say, mm-hmm. um, how to best support these people. And also our systems in maternity care are geared up for women, females, mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. Um, give birth so for example on the computer systems when someone has a baby you can't say there's no option to say a man has had a baby Mm -hmm. (laughs) it it just cannot be inputted into the the data so how does that affect uh, the midwife trying to deliver good care the person who's in the birth room and how does all that come together so we're collecting data at the moment we're saying to maternity staff what do you need to know and we're testing out what they know already we're testing out their views already so that we can hopefully come together and um, deliver training or teaching or conference or knowledge exchange of some kind that that 
enables midwives to um, deliver better care to this group of people um, because I know they want to but it's sometimes difficult to know how and what to do and I and like I say I'm definitely still working on my own knowledge in this area and I'm working with the Equality Network in particular um, and Mermaid's Charity in the UK so that they can advise me on best practice mm-hmm. um, so that I can I can kind of put the piece jigsaw pieces together and make sure everyone has the right information because it's so important to get maternity care right for everybody. Right. Uh, Shannon Whittington is somebody that I've had on the show previously uh, talking about uh, working, well, she's teaching nurses how to deliver care to transgender patients. So of all different, um, you know, things that they might be having problems with. And that was through New York, um, it's New York City, and so it would be uh, a, a, a I want to say chapter, and that's not it, uh, county uh, health, home health nursing. So I was really impressed with that. And what that brings up is a lot of different things that um, may seem minor to some people, but it's huge to, and I'm thinking of the pronoun usage. Um, just something as simple as that can be really devastating to people who are, especially if they are specifically asking to be called, um, you know, by a certain pronoun. Could you talk about that a little bit, what nurses need to prepare themselves for? uh, That will come up. I think it will come up more and more for nurses in general and um, apparently for midwives also. Well, as I understand it at the moment, it's more about asking the individual person Mm -hmm. how they wish to be uh, identified or how they identify themselves and what they would like you to use or say um, terminology they would like to to be used in their presence about them. And so I think it's more about having an open conversation and an honest conversation, um, providing individualized care. And we talk about individualized Mm -hmm. care. There is no one rule fits all here. And I wouldn't advocate kind of just using one pronoun over another in certain situations um, Mm -hmm. because uh, what I'm understanding more and more is that people identify on a spectrum Um, And and the term transgender itself is a rainbow umbrella term to encompass all different types of um, individualities and genders or non-binary people um, who want to identify certain ways. So without kind of delving into this more and and hopefully we will get more expertise to to understand this at the moment i'm i'm advocating for having conversation opening conversations up and asking people how they would like you to um, address them in terms of pronouns Mm -hmm. language use it's probably something that nurses need to add into their original um when they're doing a an assessment with a patient that should be right up there with you know name and and um you know uh, any um allergies that you have and some of the other things but i have noticed that they're showing up on various different forms now where you uh do have the opportunity to put in something other than uh what we have accepted in the or have considered um to be normal in the past so i think that's really good because it does kind of uh, clue you if it's not something that you have been immediately um, involved in. I'm very grateful to some young people in my environment that have been able to uh, enlighten me about a lot of things that I really had did not uh, know or even uh, an issue. So um, very good to get ourselves educated on these these things. 
Um, one of the things that I'm realizing with such so much change going on in, in the world and um, as young people are coming forward with new ideas about how they want to interact, there also seems to be a lot of um, uh, difficulty for individuals, sometimes creating angry uh, situations, often in um, uh, partnership type of situations, whether that's married or living together. Um, uh, it could be just roommates. But um, so where I'm going with this, I guess, is the increase in domestic abuse and domestic violence. And I'm wondering, uh, I know that's something that you're working on also, if you'd like to share a little bit about that. Yeah. So another one of my research areas is domestic um, domestic violence and abuse. And, and the reason that came about was obviously my care for midwives and their own well-being. The Royal College of Midwives approached me and said, you know, Sally, as well as um, people having babies are experiencing domestic violence and abuse, midwives are also experiencing it. And we need to explore that. Um mm-hmm especially as midwives are screening for domestic violence and abuse on a on a regular basis mm-hmm. if they don't if they're experiencing it themselves or they don't see it in themselves how is that affecting their practice and this is something we need to look into mm-hmm. so myself and the Royal College of Midwives produced a report on again support for midwives at work experiencing domestic uh, violence and abuse how that affected them how they saw it in themselves some of them didn't recognize it was happening to themselves um and uh, was still kind of staying late at work to avoid going home. Mm. Um, some of them felt like they didn't, they weren't getting adequate support from their workplace, or the the workplace didn't know how to support them or treated them poorly. And again, this idea of professionalism came up. So I'm a professional registered midwife. I should be immune to this stuff. Like I should <laughs> be, I should be, you know, put put myself above this. And it's like actually, again, coming back to the fact that midwives are human. Um, so from that. I've got into working with Dr. Lorna O'Doherty from Coventry University, who's done lots of work into screening for domestic violence um, and looking at how we refer um, women after they disclose to us. Why, you know, are we asking the right questions to to women experiencing domestic violence abuse? Um, If we're asking the questions, why aren't they telling us? Why aren't they disclosing what to us? Why aren't they seeking help um, in those areas? So currently we're coming together to pull resources um, all together and um, create some training around this. So I don't know if you guys have heard of the FutureLearn platform. I don't know whether you get that. That's um, not familiar to me, but that doesn't mean it isn't around. Okay. Well, the FutureLearn pr- platform is an online portal of online education um, that can be accessed by the public and by healthcare professionals. And we're putting together online training at the moment um, and a public interest video um about how maternity care staff can screen more effectively, ask the right questions, do the right things, respond effectively uh, so that we can increase the disclosure rate. Because we know the rates of it happening are are very scarily high, um, but that's not matched with women coming forward to us and saying, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm experiencing this. So that mis- mismatch needs to be addressed, really, and we're trying to empower maternity service workers to um, to to screen more effectively in that way. Is that something that anybody around the world could access and how, how would they do that? Yeah, so um, they go to the FutureLearn platform, uh, which is FutureLearn, all one word, 
.com.co.uk, I think, and um, there, there's a variety of courses on there, and, the, and they're done by um, they're, they're created by academics, so it's it should be evidence-based, research-based. Um, so it's really kind of high high value learning there, and and that's where we're where we're creating some some training really to support people who want to screen more effectively. So the people that are contributing to this are they from around the world, or are they mostly from Great Britain? Um, we're we're sticking with Great Britain at the moment. So we have domestic violence um, experts in the field of of women's aid charities. Um, midwives are involved. Um, domestic violence advisors are involved, uh, academics um, and research and people who've experienced it themselves are contributing. So we're co-creating it as a group, again, working multidisciplinary in a multidisciplinary way to, to bring together that learning um, mm-hmm. for people. That is fantastic. And so often, even when we're, we recognize that we need um, to know more about this information, we really don't know where to go. And I guess it is uh, a big benefit that we can go to the Internet. Um, hopefully, we're getting accurate information. That's probably one of the biggest challenges of the Internet. I think uh, when people go to... Um, uh, something especially that's connected to a university, oftentimes I think it, uh, you have a pretty pretty good bet that there's going to be uh, quality research that's been put into it and that the information you get is going to be um, as current as possible. Is that true? Yeah, we're trying to make it as credible as possible by drawing on the best evidence, really. Avoid that kind of false information, false news um, kind of stuff and selecting the best evidence, really. Not just our own research, but other people's research in the field to bring bring together kind of um, the best Mm -hmm. recommendations, really, for practice. Yeah. One thing um, I'd like to move on from this, we just have a few more minutes, but I, I would like to touch on uh, the Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. That's hard to say fast. Um, I have experienced it from the standpoint uh, from a child on being able to bend my fingers back, and that was kind of a novelty and sort of a magic trick for parties. Uh, and then progressed that um, various of my joints are way too uh, flexible. And um, as a nurse, I have, uh, and especially an OB nurse, I have come into situations where people were trying to deliver babies and, and it came into being a challenge for them. So this, I know, is another area that you're working on, and I'd love to hear what you have to say about that. Okay, well, um, again, this area of research came about because um, as a research team, we, we're very keen on, I guess, voicing the the voices of those that feel unheard or, um, you know, the minority voices. And on social media, myself and colleagues, we, we noticed that, that, that people were saying, you know, pregnancy is a real problem for us and we have Ellis Danlos syndrome uh, midwives and uh, they don't understand how to care for us they don't understand about the condition um, so it was my colleague that said to me you know Sally you're a midwife I think there's a real problem here um, what would you do if you had um, a, a woman in labor or birthing with you that had Ellis Danlos syndrome and I said I really don't know I had no clue mm-hmm. um, what to do here but I want to learn more so myself and, and Dr. Gemma Pierce along with Dr. Emma Reinhold and you'll again find all of their information on my on my web page um we came together to draw together the evidence and say actually this is the evidence we know um and this is how to best 
clinically care for someone who's having a baby who has hypermobile ehlers Danlos syndrome. And I have to stress that with ehlers Danlos syndrome, there are almost 14 types, um, mm -hmm. some much more rare than others. And we're focusing on the hypermobile ehlers Danlos syndrome, which is the most common, and the hypermobility spectrum disorders that, that are kind of almost indistinguishable um, from hypermobile ehlers Danlos syndrome. So that's what we focused on. And that got a huge response. We had such a positive response from that. It's currently the British Journal of Midwifery's most read paper ever. Mm. <laughs> That's how um, much it was needed. And people were saying to us, you know, we're printing it out and we're taking it to our healthcare provider um, so that they know what to do and, and they can read your paper. Out. And it's got all the evidence there on one page. Well, a couple of pages. And, um, <laughs> it's never and, one and page. It's, and it's really <laughs> helping them to make birth choices that are appropriate mm -hmm. for them and helping their healthcare providers to understand a bit more about their condition. So that really was awesome that we could do that. And then we did a study where we interviewed people who'd had babies uh, with hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome to ask them about their experiences, so the good and the bad and the outcomes associated with that. Um, and that's just about to be published in the next couple of months as well, where we, we try and work out um, how many people are affected by Ehlers-Danlos syndrome in pregnancy, how it might affect them on a personal level and where we can take that next. And then we also did a, a massive survey study uh, of people who'd had Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and had babies to ask them about their experiences. And we also asked maternity staff about their educational needs. So mm -hmm. we're pulling all that together. And, and again, we're hoping to release tools very, very soon to help people learn. So one of those things is an online module with the Royal College of Midwives to teach midwives, you know, best practice in, in terms of caring for people. Uh, and we're also going to be launching a website soon with lots of hints and tips and toolkits and information for people to access, both both people with EDS and um, healthcare professionals. And that's going to be called Heads Together. So H-E-D-S mm -hmm. Together, all one word. Uh, and you can find that again on our social media channels when we launch them. Um, and hopefully that will that will have kind of a printable PDF for someone to, to go to their healthcare provider and say, this is what you need to care for me. This is what you need to know about me. This is my personal circumstance. This is how you can help me. And mm -hmm. again, we'll pull all that evidence together and, and come up with update it's always updating this this knowledge and evidence we have so we'll be updating um the the clinical guidance that we've published soon it's more mm -hmm. like care considerations what you should you consider um in maternity services and it's really exciting because the the positive response we've had from who it's helped and how it's helped them has been amazing and that's really why what motivates me to do my job mm -hmm. and to to do research in this area because as a midwife you make a difference to people every day you touch every pregnancy you touch every person but that touch isn't always with your hands it's sometimes mm -hmm. you know it's not a physical touch it's a touch by creating evidence or teaching a midwifery student or um, creating a policy document um, and that's what really inspires me to do what I do and do better. It's always interesting because there's always things that uh, interest one person over another, you know, from curiosity standpoint or whatever. So one person's study of it can um, uh, uh, set off a whole chain reaction of other people's interests, maybe in some aspect of it, uh, and take it that much further. Um, I'm thinking that it's a genetic disease. Is that correct? Yes, yeah. Okay, and then uh, would it show up in the baby, and, and how soon as a child might you see 
um, see the the results of it in a child? Well, it very much depends on on the skill of the professionals um, around about understanding the the signs and symptoms to look out for, really. And it's very difficult to diagnose um, at present. And people are definitely um, reporting to us that it's taken them years to get a diagnosis, Mm -hmm. years to understand um, that they've been fobbed off with um, excuses and just experiencing symptoms and and pain and suspecting it in their children um, because they know it can be passed on, but not having a diagnosis themselves mean that it's difficult for their child to get diagnosed um and also Mm -hmm. as a baby um they you know they could see signs and symptoms that they don't realize are 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 kind of um symptoms of having hypermobile anastanol syndrome um so it's much more difficult in babies unfortunately to to come to terms with and it, there's there's not really a well, there's, there's no blood test or, or kind of concrete test it's, it's on clinical symptoms really um and, and patient history so that makes it even more complex so right. we, we need to really drill down into how we can speed up that process uh, and understand that process and i think the first step to doing that is to get people to understand that it's not actually a rare condition, hypermobile mm. Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Some of the Ehlers-Danlos syndromes are really rare, but the hypermobility types and the hypermobility spectrum disorders are not actually rare. And we need to really, really hone in on that so that we can get more services dedicated to to people who need help, uh, more recognition around the topic, and improve those, um, those diagnoses the rates of diagnosis where appropriate and I think that's what we're trying to do now. Uh, Dr. Passar, we have just about one minute. Is there one thing, we've talked about a lot of things, <laughs> one thing that you want nurses around the world or healthcare um, professionals around the world to know about what you're talking about now? Um, I just think in the in the year of the nurse and the midwife, it's really important that we come together and we showcase the, the value we have and the value we hold. Uh, we're not a secondary profession. Um, we are a, 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 at the forefront and pinnacle of, of amazing care for um, people who are having babies around the world. And I think there's so much more we can achieve. And you do touch the lives of every single person having a baby, but that touch isn't always a physical one. So think about how you're contributing to the profession on a, on a, on a broader scale and, and where you can go with it, because I think there's so much potential there that we can take forward in the year of the nurse and the midwife. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. I am so glad you were able to join us today. It has been a very interesting program to me. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's lovely to have uh, a different audience as well. And in the yes. UK, people are bored of hearing me talk about this stuff. But um, I'm hoping your your audience have um, have enjoyed um, the, the, the topics I've brought to the table today. Thank you. Um, next week, we uh, that will be the 16th of March, and I will be having Angela Peacock, who is a, mil- a former military uh, personnel, and Dr. Mary V. Ten, who is also um, a military um, individual uh, from the Navy, I believe. We're going to be talking about um, treating uh, military people who are returning from war with PTSD and some other uh, issues that have been treated as mental health issues and um, are not are being treated with medication primarily and psychiatric um, uh, interventions. And Dr. Mary Vten is working on an organization called Warfighter Advance. Uh, who is they're using neither medication nor uh, psychiatric um, 
diagnoses and things like that. So please do turn in next week on the 16th, and that will be 12 noon in on Central Time in the United States, um, other times as uh, as needed around the world. So thank you um, so much again to my listeners, and if you are interested in um, sharing anything with me, please contact me on leannevoiceamerica at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with your host, Leanne Meyer. Be sure to join us again next Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a productive and insightful week. easier to 